Super Talk Mississippi media production. Moondog Makers and Bakers Catering Services. Taking ordinary to extraordinary. Personal and home private nights to massive events. From wood-fired pizzas to full gras. Get your three-pack spice blend of moon dust, moon crust, and moon rocks. Hashtag what is Moondog? Familiar food done differently. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Well Studio, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music. Kicking off a brand new week, Rhino. Howdy, howdy. It's still cold, by the way, out there. I played a little golf on Saturday in the blustery conditions, and uh, we we didn't go off till. Two o'clock. We braved nine holes. We had uh, a five-some scheduled to play in our little electronic communication registration. (laughs) And uh, two of those who had indicated they would join us also had to do their grandfather duty on the soccer fields. A lot of soccer games being played this Saturday. (laughs) And they both came back after standing out on the soccer fields and said, I'm out. You guys can't have it. They had enough uh, and wanted us to send photos proving we actually played. A little blustery. Yesterday was a lot better. Still chilly a bit. Yeah, I think that's going to make its way out of the Magnolia State today. And it looks like... Vast majority of Mississippians will have a mild week. Yeah. It looks like it's going to be pretty nice. Right nice this week, right? No rain in the forecast and and uh, inching ever closer to spring. You know what else is right around the corner, don't you? Daylight saving time three weeks out. Spring forward. Man, I cannot wait for that. Looking forward to it for sure. Well, we got a lot of stuff going on here across the nation in the Magnolia State that we'll get to today. We've got Carl Boyenton, a candidate for Mississippi's 4th Congressional District. He'll join middays at 11.05, talk about his campaign. He, of course, is challenging the incumbent congressman who represents the 4th District. That would be in the southern portion of the state. That's Mike Ezel. So... We look forward uh, to that interview. In the meantime, we got uh, something that caught my attention. Yesterday, okay, February 18th, on that day, 1967, a nationally televised celebrity charity softball game at Dodger Stadium. Eddie Fainer, underhand 
fast-pitch softball pitcher. Played for a team, an exhibition team known as the King in His Court. He struck out six consecutive big leaders, leaguers, including five future Hall of Famers. 1967, 39 years old when he did that. He struck out Willie Mays, Willie McCovey, Brooks Robinson, Harmon Killebrew, Roberto Clemente, and Mari Wills. I will um, I'll say that I had the honor of seeing Eddie play, came to Jackson. And there were some softball fields over by Hawkinsfield, what we used to call the old air base, because it was Hawkinsfield over in West Jackson. Bicycle distance for me when I was a kid. And I was a baseball nut, used to hang around the fields. And there were softball and baseball fields there, full-size field. And he came. It's unbelievable how hard he could throw a ball underhanded. I remember him being featured, I think I get this right, in the Sports Illustrated issue. Of course, that magazine is no longer. But back then, I couldn't wait to read every issue as a sports nut. And he was featured in the uh, in the publication. And I want to say, Rhino, that he had been requested to donate his arm upon death to medical science just for examination. How does this guy throw this thing so hard? What's unique about that? The king in his court. He did not have a full team behind him. Of course, he had a catcher, a first baseman, I think maybe a shortstop and an outfielder or something like that. Well, no, he had four players on his team. Four, okay. He he originally, he he was going to take a bet that he could beat an entire team by himself. But then he figured, this is going to take a while if i got to go behind the plate and get the ball, so I need a catcher. Okay. And then he said... Every once in a while, they'll get a hit on me. So I need somebody in the field of play. Or hit it. Not necessarily get a hit, but hit right. it. Yeah. At, least, at least hit the ball. <laughs> yeah, fair territory. So i got to have somebody in the field. So that's three. Well, what happens when it's my turn to bat? And i got the bases loaded, and there's all, I've only got three people on my team. So that's why he had four players okay. on his team. I knew it was something like that. I gave him an extra one, but right. Total of four. It well, was pitcher, catcher, first baseman, and shortstop. <laughs> who the shortstop essentially in the first baseman covered the entire field just on the outside chance. You know, the reality is they were pretty bored. They have a lot to do because nobody could hit it. Unbelievable. Um, so I, I, I came across this on social media, and there was a, somebody who said, I got to bat against him back in 1966 when they were touring on the East Coast. This was in uh, New Hampshire at the Naval Base against the Marine team. He said, believe it or not, I got a single off him, not because of my hitting, but because he accidentally hit my bat. (laughs) So true. So dang true. Unbelievable, isn't it? It's also President's Day, right? So the markets are closed. I don't have to stress out (laughs) over watching the kangaroo hop around, get a little respite. And um, I want to say that got started as a way to celebrate our first president, George Washington. I did catch an interview this weekend it's on the streets. You know, one of these random reporters goes out on the streets. Hey, what about President's Day? And they asked a few adults. I'm going to say 20-something adults in that age range. Who's the nation's first president? Um, I oh, didn't know. 
This is kind of sad, isn't it? But I, I guess it's where we are these days. Unbelievable. He, uh, Mr. Washington, born on February the 22nd, 1732. Pope's Creek Plantation near the Potomac River in Washington. They say technically he was born February the 11th under the old Julian calendar. I forgot. When did we convert to the Gregorian? I think that was in the 1750s, I want to say, comes to mind. Something like that. But I guess he was born under the old Julian calendar, not the Gregorian calendar. I remember that was always a common exercise for software, learning how to write software. It was to take a Gregorian date and convert it. The U.S., Canada, and the U.K. dropped 11 days to align with the Gregorian calendar in 1752. Okay, how about that? Happened to dig that out of the old noggin. I think it was 1700-something or another. Wow. Japan didn't get on board until 1872, so they had to cut 12 days. And countries such as Russia, Greece, and Turkey didn't switch until the early 20th century, so they had to cut 13 days. Man, how messed up would that have been, having a different calendar across the globe? Wow. Well, there we go. So we got Carl Boynton coming on. We're in the Element Well studio, of course. Uh, How about this? A uh, (laughs) a score dating app. (laughs) This is a new app that basically requires you to have a certain credit score to participate on these dating apps, on this dating app. I want to say it's a 675 credit score. If you sign up, you got to prove through one of the credit scoring services you got at least a 675. So the idea there is I don't want to date anybody if I'm in the market for dating. <laughs> That's the idea behind this app. They can't at least score 675 on their credit. How about that? That's a way, to, I guess, to avoid the old deadbeats, huh? So to speak. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean they're a deadbeat, but it does certainly mean that they've got an issue with respect to their credit, and they just don't want that. I thought that was kind of interesting, a credit score requirement to join a credit app. The other big news, of course, it came down on the Fridays that former President Donald Trump ordered to pay $355 million in fines in a New York business fraud case. I don't happen to think he committed any fraud. Um, certainly no actionable fraud. But what's What's not widely known is that not only did the court order him to pay $355 million as a fine, but also interest, which uh, accounts to amounts to $100 million and accrues daily until the fine is settled. So he owes $454 million today. Actually, as of Friday, it's gone up somewhat 9%. Pre-judgment interest was the uh, annual rate. We're coming right back uh, with more in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. Now back to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi.
We are back in the Element Well studio. So this uh, this case, this verdict that now compels the former president to pay $355 million as a fine, a penalty, to the state. And then interest as well, which is another $100 million and is registering daily at an annual rate of 9%. This is very disturbing because we have a situation where the crime itself, at least the crime as alleged, let me put it that way, by the court, by this judge who clearly has an axe to grind with this former president, there's no victim. There's no harm. There are no damages. There are no consequences. Everybody got paid in full, and we're more than willing to loan more. This is disturbing. Who's next? Me? You? Anybody? And it's all because they believe, they being the court, the plaintiff, the state of New York, the attorney general, that Mr. Trump inflated his assets as well. Well, that's subjective unto itself, especially when you're talking about real estate. But I've never known any lender, whether it's a commercial bank, a private equity firm, a what are called mezzanine debt lenders, I've never known them ever to loan money without some third-party ascertainment of the value of the asset securing a loan. And in this case, by the way, Mr. Trump also offered a personal guarantee. Now, I've dealt with that in my business career. You don't really like that you have a personal guarantee associated with any debt if, if you're the borrower. Because it simply means that, hey, if the, if the borrower business, the entity defaults, we come after you personally, your assets personally. Now, in some cases especially, I can tell you, as a new company, you're not getting any loan without personal guarantees. They want to have access to everything. I don't blame them. It's high-risk loan. In the case of Mr. Trump, with a, a net worth at that point of some $3 billion, he was he gave a personal guarantee. He signed a personal guarantee provision of uh, the loan contract. The credit agreement is what they're called. So they had that, but they never needed it. Because the loans performed, meaning they were satisfied, paid, on time, fully, principal and interest. So who's the victim? Who got hurt? Did the state of New York get hurt? Because that's who's getting the money. I mean, that's just shaking down, extracting assets. I'm no Trump apologist here. I'm blasting the system in this bad law in the state of New York. So technically, what they did is consistent with and inside the law. It's just a bad law that's got to be struck down. So Mr. Trump is going to appeal it. It's going to go first to the New York Supreme Court. They're likely to uphold the verdict based on indications, early indications. 
Well, then the next step would be the U.S. Supreme Court. Certainly, I hope and pray, they're going to find this ridiculous New York statute unconstitutional and strike it down. I don't I don't think it's, as I recall, Rhino, I don't think it's ever been invoked. It's been on the books like since 1956, I believe. Uh, I don't think it's ever been used the way it has here, which is to essentially complain as the plaintiff that the defendant, that would be the former president, he inflated his assets. He owes us money. For what? This is ridiculous. It's so politically charged. It is gross, blatant weaponization of government. And in fact, when you hear Joe Biden, the Democrats, Kamala Harris, and all the other group there, we cannot allow Mr. Trump to get elected again because we'd be living under fascism. No, this is fascism. This is exactly fascism. Is it not right according to the classical definition of fascism? This is fascism. That's exactly what it is. It's using government in a way that government feels is in the best interest from a business perspective of the citizenry. This is fascism, what happened in New York. It should shake everyone to their core. Now, I don't really care if he inflated the assets or not. If he inflated his assets and for some reason that resulted in a default that triggered a default, assets just weren't as valuable as he uh, indicated they were on his what's called a statement of financial condition, an SFC, and the lender absorbed the loan, ate the loan, was harmed financially. Okay, well, that's between the lender and the borrower, not the courts. You may take a case to court to pursue a defaulting borrower, but in my experience, it almost never yields anything. My my lawyers used to always say, there are no collections police. <laughs> it's kind of what they say, and it's true. You're kind of on your own. But in this case, that didn't happen. That's the point. Nobody got harmed. Nobody defaulted. Everybody was paid in full. This is all about trying to discredit a person and work to essentially prevent them from being a candidate for president. It's, it's all about that. Well, let's see. We're going to get $350, $450 million out of him. We'll tie him up in court so he can't effectively campaign, and that'll increase our chances of winning. That's what it's about. How could anybody not see that? So besides the verdict of economic Damages that he's having to pay here for misrepresenting his wealth, which I just fail to see, again, how that even matters, even if that were the case. If you could prove he inflated his assets, that's between him and the lender, the borrower and the lender. But he is barred from holding a position as an officer of or director of a New York-based company for two years. They want it permanent, by the way. They wanted to permanently bar him, essentially from doing business in the state of New York. Now, you've seen some truckers rally on his behalf. And there is a kind of a move afoot where many truckers feel like that this verdict was wrong. And they're saying 
They're going to boycott New York. We're not going to deliver to New York. And, of course, businesses in New York are thinking, well, I could be next. They could come after me for inflating the value of my assets on some piece of paper. That's scary. That's just that's fascism. It is. It's your government working against you and what it thinks is in your best interest or the best interest of the people. Who in the heck would want to do business in New York? Come to New York. The taxes are insane. The crime is out of control. Now we got the the mayor, you've seen this, that wants to house migrants in some ritzy hotel, just take over the hotel. You got all, all kinds of just societal problems out on the streets, can't ride the dang subways, take over schools and recreational facilities to accommodate the illegals. And then they do this, making it virtually impossible. If they wanted to come after you, they could shut you down. Oh, you you um, inflated the cost of that fryer back there in your in your uh, restaurant. You owe us a bunch of money. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about. Just government acting without any check, and that's scary. And it's just, it's, this isn't about Trump. This is about turning the country into a banana republic. That's exactly what happens. Government just has their way. They're not checked. Man, so I uh, I was mad as hell, honestly, after I heard that this past weekend, after the verdict came down. It was just wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. It's, it's bad for our economy. It's certainly bad for the state of New York. It's bad for everybody. This sets a precedent. And I don't know if any such laws exist in any other states, but if some attorney general, some aggressive attorney, opportunistics, really what she is, trying to make a name for herself. Look what I did. I took down the great Donald Trump. Just abusing power to the nth degree. Same as Fannie Willis down there in Georgia with her dress on backwards. This is scary. Pardon me, that's my headset hitting the mic there. We're going to step aside for a break right here. We're in the Element Well studio. When we uh, come back, we got more to talk about. Again, it's Carl Boyenton, candidate for Congress at 11.05. Be sure and check out today. You're listening to Middays with Gerard. Gerard Gibbert, here on Super Talk Mississippi. You know, I've been tracking the Journey Boys since I saw them a little over a week ago launching the 2024 Freedom Tour in Biloxi, Mississippi. Proud that my home state was where they launched uh, this year's tour. And then they went on down to Fort Lauderdale area and then up to uh, Raleigh. And then they played last night in Baltimore, Maryland. 
And, of course, my social media journey junkie friends, <laughs> they track all that stuff and share photos. And, uh, Rhino, every, every show sold out. Sold out. Now, it's a bunch of people in my age group, of course, but it's still sold out which I think indicates the music is somewhat timeless. I find that kind of cool, especially for guys in their 70s that are out there doing that. And I know it's only two and a half, three hours a night. It's still pretty taxing, I would think, on the body. And then you get up and have to travel to another town, do it again, and make it look like you know, you're just as excited as the first time you ever did it. Special skill associated with those performers. I'm not just... Crediting them with that capability. It's everybody that does that, man. That's why we pay the money for them. And then I think it was the Eagles and Steely Dan. They played in the Smoothie King down in New Orleans. Was it Saturday? A lot of friends headed down there. It's over the weekend, I know. That's pretty cool. Another couple of classic rock groups from the same era. Was it Saturday they played? Yeah, it was Saturday. Smoothie King. I think it was sold out, of course. So... For the long goodbye tour. Okay. Again, right? <laughs> uh, let's see here on the ceasefire text line. Mike in Gulfport says Eddie Fainer was fantastic, talking about the softball, fast-pitch softball pitcher from the 60s and 70s, the king in his court. He inspired me to try fast-pitch. Saw him on old-timey TV. Man, he was. I mean, he was one of a kind, no doubt. Chris in Summit says, Glenn Moore, Baylor head softball coach, pitched for the king in his court as Eddie got older. Glenn is from Liberty, Mississippi. Didn't know that. That's really cool. Let's see here. Larry and Brookhaven, we were talking about daylight saving time. That uh, The time springs forward March the 10th this year. Says, wasn't daylight savings time voted to discontinue by Congress? No, quite the opposite, Larry. The U.S. Senate passed a bill. That uh, I think it was the Sunshine Act is what it was called, as as, uh, memory serves. Marco Rubio was the sponsor from Florida. It passed the Senate, never got taken up in the House. I don't think it ever will. And that was to make daylight saving time permanent year-round. I actually, I'm probably the weird one. I like the time change. I think it makes sense. Some people don't. That's fine. It's a matter of opinion. Uh, I I just think that just given the... I mean, as Rhino, you pointed out many times, it doesn't make the days longer. It just adjusts the clock around the daylight. So, uh, But, yeah, and I think that that comes up every year. Does it not, Rhino, in the legislature? But the Congress has got to, got to sign off on it, get on board with it. I don't think it's going to happen, just my opinion. Seth says, do you have any news or opinion on the trucker strike? Just that it's being organized. That's all I know at this point. There are some... I guess uh, outspoken leaders within the trucking community. A lot of these, I think, Rhino, are um, they're just independent truckers. They just they you they're part of systems that allow them to be hired for loads back and forth. And many have said we're not going to New York as as a way to protest the verdict. It's bad. Which that's one way to to protest the verdict. Yeah, I mean if you're a independent owner-operator of a small trucking company, that's your prerogative. It's your company. I would tell people, if you see a GoFundMe or GoSendMe or any other crowdfunding apparatus raising money to pay Trump's legal bills, don't. It's already happened. 350000 last I checked. It's the dude's raised. got enough money. 
Yeah, I thought that was kind you of silly. You don't have too. to pay your hard-earned money for him. I, I agree. I thought that was silly. I mean, maybe you think somehow you're being endeared to the former president by putting your 10 bucks in there or something, but I don't think so. Let's see on the ceasefire text line. Can I say my properties are worth a certain amount to my banks for loans and tell the government a different amount when it comes to taxes? If so, I've definitely been conducting business wrong. Help me understand how that's allowed in your opinion. Well, in my opinion, and in my extensive experience in working with financial institutions uh, for debt, both traditional commercial banks, private equity firms, and mess debt, cash flow lenders, I've never known a single one of them to take my financial data at face value, what we call internally generated, generated financial statements or statements of financial condition, I've never known that to be the case. Um, I have actually secured loans in the past where I collateralized it with stock. This is kind of weird. Stock, get this, in the bank that's loaning me the money. (laughs) And I had to turn over these stock certificates to them to hold as long as as, uh, collateral, if you will. As long as that uh, that loan was outstanding, I, again the point is, can anybody tell me that they've ever applied for a mortgage? Let's just take that simple case, and let's say it's a it's a homeowner or easy case, it's a builder, and the builder goes to the bank and says, "Oh, I think this this house is going to be worth two hundred thousand dollars." Okay, that's good enough for me. I'll, here's your loan. Have you ever known that to happen without an appraisal? A third-party appraisal that they pick and that you pay for. Can, can you think of a situation? Anybody out there ever had that? Same deal. Same exact deal. I cannot not imagine a financial institution issuing, issuing a loan, making a loan, especially substantial loans like these, without having an army of third-party appraisers come in and determine the value of those properties that are being used to collateralize the loan. I can't imagine it. I, I just. I'm I mean, shocked. if you want the simplest possible valuation discussion, just look at the TV show Pawn Stars. Somebody comes into the famous pawn shop with a piece of memorabilia they want to sell. The guy behind the counter goes, Well, how much you want for it? The person that brought the object goes, I want $1,000. Person behind the counter is in there thinking, I don't know if I can make a thousand dollars on this. Let me call a buddy. We'll find out how much it's really worth from the expert. Exactly. Same deal. To get somebody that no, especially when they bring in these off the wall items with which they don't have any personal experience. They'll bring and they'll sometimes come down to the store. Oh yeah, like coins and, and currency, right? Things like oh, that. Yeah. There's collectors and experts and all that that know what that can fetch on the market. From other collectors who buy that kind of stuff. Yeah, so that's just upside down, in my view. I I just cannot fathom that a financial institution, and if they did here, I'd say, well, shame on you. You didn't do your due diligence. You You don't have this thing, they call it perfecting. You haven't perfected the loan. I just can't comprehend it. Now, I did read some reports where there are... Some that work for the Trump organization, accountants that said, yeah, I think we messed up on this, that, and the other. And I, uh, as far as the valuation, I'm thinking, oh, well, why did they take your word for it? I, just, I don't get it. But nonetheless, the most important aspect of this whole deal is that nobody got hurt. If 
Deutsche Bank, by the way, who made most of these loans, if somehow, if or not somehow, but if Mr. Trump had defaulted on those loans, I paid them back, and it was because he grossly inflated the value of the assets, and, and thus the economics didn't work, and he simply couldn't service the loan, I'd be the first to say, that's a problem. That's absolutely a problem. Now, if, on the other hand, Deutsche hired an army of third-party appraisers, and they determined the value of that property, and they just missed it, well, that's on you. I mean, it still means you're responsible. Don't get me wrong. If you take out a loan, you're responsible. But in this case, he paid it. Well, think about how upside down it is, Rhino. He he borrows billions of dollars and pays every penny back with interest to the point where Deutsche Bank says, we're happy to loan him more money. He's a good client. Of course. I can tell you from working with banks and, and business, you prove that, that you're a, um, a zero or good credit risk. They can't give you enough money because they want a million like you. Because there's so many that can't and don't. But, on the other hand, Joe Biden, with a swipe of a pen, he just says, be gone with a trillion dollars of student loan debt. That's okay. That's upside down. I mean, it just is. That's perverted. Uh, our friend Senator Jeremy England, he sent me an article. Governor Kathy Hochul of New York is tell- fearful, of course, that businesses are going to maybe take a cue from what happened to Mr. Trump and start looking to exit the Empire State. She says, don't worry, we're only doing this to Trump. Well, that's just proof positive that this is just fascism, is what this is. Thank you for pointing that out there, Governor Hochul, and appreciate the senator for sending that in. That's just proof right there. Man, oh man, we got to get this thing back on track. We just do. Just do. We're, our priorities are all screwed up. The people out there stealing stores blind, we just let them on the street. People that pay their debt, we put penalties on them. It's upside down. Coming right back in the Element Well studio. Hey, this You're listening to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi. We're back in the Element Well studio. It's Monday, so we got a two-hour show today. That means Super Talk Outdoors with Ricky Matthews coming up at 12.05. Can the bank countersue, says Dan in Hattiesburg, and will cost them future loans? Well, sure, Dan. I mean, I, my answer to that, anytime a question is asked about can somebody sue, the reality is for a pretty small cost, you can file a lawsuit against just about anybody for anything. Now, how far that would go, I don't know. It opens up a whole new can of worms, as they say. That's a good point. And then someone else said, would other real estate companies be considered like purchasers, considered injured because he falsely inflated properties, and that caused the overall market to increase in cost, therefore costing them more money to purchase? And this is why I say I I just can't fathom that the uh, Deutsche Bank, in this case, 
approve that loan on the face value of internally generated valuations of assets. I just can't fathom that. That's why you have third-party appraisers. They come in and want one of the key inputs, of course, to appraising a property is looking at transactions associated with like properties in the same area. Uh, that's pretty common. That's a pretty good gauge. Hey, this is what just happened. I mean, in the residential housing market, it's extremely common. Well, the one next door is similar, down the street similar, in the same neighborhood, all the same um, other issues that factor into the value of a home, school district, roads, all that, all that stuff, insurance, homeowners association, and that's a pretty good guide used by realtors and used by, uh, sorry, appraisers. Same applies here, commercial real estate, same deal. So I'm still perplexed as to how in the world Deutsche granted these loans, approved these loans on the basis of just internally generated documents. I mean, why have third-party financial audits if the market and third parties, bonding companies, insurance companies, etc., investors will accept your internally generated documents? Whether you're committing any sort of fraud or not, I just know not. That's the whole purpose of public account accountants and and having certified public accountants produce financial statements in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles and render an opinion about the company, the state of the company, the financial condition of the company. That's what they're for. That's who relies on them. Lenders, insurance companies, bonding companies, which are insurance companies, third-party investors, et cetera, et cetera. I, I'm just – I can't fathom this. So, But again – Regardless, they got repaid. I think the big property in question, as I recall, was this Mar-a-Lago estate, which he says is worth considerably more than what the court said. Well, I mean, isn't that something that third-party real estate appraisers should and could do? That kind of settles it? I would think so. How were the insurers harmed? The policy would only pay out what it actually cost to replace the building. So if they overinflated values, only Trump was hurt. Well, but that, that there was never a claim. That would only come up if there was some sort of claim on the property because of a casualty, generally speaking. It's almost like the reason this law has never been enforced is because if there's actually a victim, there are other laws on the books with much stronger punishments that would be applied. Yeah. Uh, Kevin in Monticello, I'm a real estate appraiser. Almost everyone thinks their property is worth more than it actually is. It's human nature. That's why they hire an independent third party to value it. That's absolutely uh, true, Kevin. And I, I can pass on that in acquiring companies, every owner thinks their business is worth a whole lot more than it actually is. Now, that's a, a function of ultimately what buyer and seller can agree to. But there are business up. I mean, that's a lesson well. everybody should have learned when they were seven years old opening packs of baseball cards. Yeah, that that's rookie true. card of your favorite player is only worth whatever you can get somebody to pay you for it. That's absolutely true. Just let the market work. This is not a place for government. This is government intervention into a private transaction just for political gain. How can you see it as anything but for that political gain? Notoriety. And uh, some sort of perverse pleasure gained by the attorney general here, uh, Letitia James, 
the Attorney General of New York, who said when she was elected, I'm going after Trump. Made that clear. Now we got the governor. Our friend Senator Jeremy England just sent me the article. Says, don't worry, this was just Trump. Oh, so we have laws that we only, uh, that we inconsistently apply. If it's Trump, it applies this way. But if it's other people, no, nah, we're not going to invoke that. Well, that's pretty much explains why this is a bad decision, a bad verdict. Unbelievable. Really is. Well, it's time for Fox News and Super Talk News because we are at the top of the hour. When we return, it's Carl Boyenton. He's a candidate for Mississippi's 4th Congressional District. And then uh, we got to talk to you today about what's happening on the Medicaid expansion front. I know Thomas and Greenwood is waiting for that one. We're coming right back. Stay with us. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of Middays is with you now. We are live in the Element Wealth Studio. We welcome to the program Carl Boyenton, candidate for uh, Mississippi's 4th Congressional District. Mr. Boyenton, good to see you, sir. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for the invite, Gerard. All right, so tell us uh, what motivated you to jump in this race for Mississippi's uh, 4th Congressional District. Currently, that seat is held, of course by a congressman, Mike Ezel. What was your uh, your thoughts there? Well, you know, I, I actually helped Mike Ezel get elected. And uh, again, like most politicians, uh, they fall into the swamp too quick. Uh, so, you know, I jumped in because, again, Mike Ezel lied. Uh, he, he actually campaigned. We all campaigned on not voting for Kevin McCarthy and... He voted 15 times for him. Uh, we campaigned on cutting spending and he voted with Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats for the debt ceiling, which had a $2 trillion to our debt. Uh, again, these are things that you campaign on and then you go there and you fall right into the swamp and you don't do what you went there to, what you said you were going to do. So even though, uh, I didn't desire to get into this race this time. I had a lot of people call me and tell me, you know, I needed to get in and uh, challenge him. So I am because uh, I believe Mississippi and America needs better. Okay, so let's talk about uh, the debt ceiling. The the budget itself is one of the uh, the points in your platform. You indicate uh, on your site that you would push a balanced budget amendment. So that's likely not to pass. Uh, and if it doesn't, what's, no. ne- what's next? Well, actually, what I want to push for is to get to zero-based budgeting so that we actually take and have to reauthorize everything in the budget. That alone will balance the budget if we actually, you know, uh, go out and we have to reauthorize every item in the budget. Uh, you'll be able to 
cream, uh, take a lot of, uh, wasteful spending out programs that aren't, you know, we don't even need anymore. Uh, so to me, that's a way to balance the budget. We might never get a balanced budget amendment, but again, it's not like I wouldn't push for it and I definitely vote for it, but, uh, I come up from, from a business background, so I know how to balance a budget and, uh, I know finance pretty well. Okay. So would you apply the zero, uh, based budgeting approach to the mandatory programs as well as social security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, that would require, you know, significant cuts to those programs to balance a budget. Well, you know, there's so much, there's so much waste in those programs. I mean, you know, you got to figure that every year we take and announce that we've lost a hundred billion dollars in Medicare and Medicaid. So how about we take a little bit of money and actually enforce the uh, Medicare, Medicaid, so that we're not throwing away this money every time. And again, it's across the budget. It's it's across everything in the budget. I mean, we have so much wasteful spending. I could spend an hour here giving you an item by item where we throw away billions of dollars. Yeah, the CBO estimates $280 billion in Medicare, Medicaid, and other transfer yep. programs a year, $80 billion in Medicaid alone. Of course, as you know, the deficit's $2 trillion. We could cut the entire discretionary mm-hmm. budget. Would you pledge that you would never vote for a discretionary budget? Because, as you know, you don't vote for the mandatory spending. Would you be willing to pledge that you would never vote for a discretionary spending, uh, uh, either an omnibus bill or, let's say, regular order, the 12 spending? bills if they produce a deficit i actually that's my whole goal is to stop this deficit spending this is the reason why like again i'm I'm in the race is because we've had this last year here where they voted for the debt ceiling increase with the with the democrats and nancy pelosi three continuing resolutions with the democrats and nancy pelosi the national defense authorization act with nancy pelosi and the democrats 2023 Congress will go down as the least productive Congress in at least 100 years. Yeah, so it looks like we're headed for more CRs because the deadline approaches in Congress is actually off right now. So I don't, I don't think we're going to yeah. get regular order as was uh, thought to be the case if we replace Kevin McCarthy with Mike Johnson. So I guess who's next to try that? Uh, you also indicate that you're a, a pro-life candidate. That's a, a very typical Republican stance. And that um, you've been watching the Roe v. Wade being put back to the states. Uh, What do you think about Mr. Trump announcing that he would support a 16-week ban on abortion? Would you consider that pro-life at the federal level, a federal law? Not really. Okay. Not really. I mean, to me, you know, again, I I think we did right. We pushed it down to the states and let the states make those decisions. And and the problem is, is that, you know, we have states, of course, that, I don't like the decisions they've made, but you know, that's the Republican platform is to take and let the states make those decisions. Yeah. It shouldn't be the federal law, federal officers making those decisions. Okay. So if, if such a bill were introduced and Mr. Trump becomes president, would you not support that? You would vote against that? Probably, yes. Okay, all right. What about uh, immigration? That uh, That's a hot topic these days that has uh, rapidly evolved into the number one concern of, of, of voters across the country, of course, considerably uh, so by Republicans, but now even Democrats are expressing concern. What do you think about that? Well, again, I think this is where the 2023 Congress, you know, could have done something, but under a Republican-controlled Congress, uh, 2023, we allowed the most amount of illegals into our country. We acquiesced to the Democrats on every one of the big spending packages where we passed them with 
Democrats and not Republicans. We didn't hold the administration accountable where we could have held them to take and closing the border by not passing the debt ceiling. We could have held them hostage with the continuing resolutions, with the NDAA. But instead, we went ahead and voted with Democrats, and we didn't use that to use our leverage. The only leverage you have in Congress in 2023 was the budget, and we didn't use it at all. We acquiesced to the Democrats every time. So, yeah, the border is very, very uh, important right now. And as a matter of fact, if you had that read that article the other day that 64 million people have uh, gone to the, the CDP app one uh, last year, from Mexico, 64 million. Where are we going to put 64 million people? And the problem is, as you've also noticed, that that affects our congressional races and adds uh, congressional districts. And the Democrats, you know, they're playing the long game while the Republicans are playing the waiting game. So they're not they're they're working on this to try to change the structure of our country, so they never lose another election. And we keep electing milk toast Republicans that go there, fall into the swamp, and they don't sit there and fight and bring this out in front of the cameras. The narrative, we don't ever take over the narrative. We let them push us around. They push us around all in 2023, and we can do better. We need to do better. What's your position on term limits? I support term limits. I, I If I get there, I hope to put a term limit package together on day one. And... Uh, uh, again, I have a, a package from the 1994 uh, contract with America, which I like, and that's the uh, term limit bill I'll, I'll, I'll push. So uh, what, what are the limitations? Your site says your stance limit, Congress should be limited to two, to six, to six two-year terms, so 12 years in the House, six terms. 12 in the House, 12 in the Senate, and again, I know a lot of the term limit bills are based on six and 12, but you know, again, we want to get these passed. So to take and go to Congress and try to push a 12 and 12, uh, I think we'd have a better chance of getting it done. You know, okay. we can always change it in the future, but if we don't get something done, you know, we'll never get term limits passed. If they're not, and I have no problem with every congressman and senator who all campaign on term limits and explain it to them. This is, this would work and it keeps you protected. And then, uh, you'll be the one that went down as the person that voted for term limits. Which, of course, just means that we we allow the people yeah. to actually vote on it. So you have indicated also that you commit to only serving, if you are fortunate enough to be seated in the U.S. House, uh, six terms or, tw- or 12 years as you're proposing in a term limits bill. So you're vowing to do that, right? You yeah. only stay 12 years and you yes. come home. Okay. Yes. All right. Uh, and then uh, also on um, federal departments that you'd like to see eliminated. you got about a, about 30 seconds or a minute left. Uh, real quick. Uh, Department of Education, the EPA. I think we need to restructure a bunch of the other departments. We need to take uh, and take the lawmaking out of the departments and put it back into Congress where Congress is the one that makes the laws, not the departments. Uh, they get slapped down all the time for, you know, their – their uh, edicts that, you know, uh, oversee, over, uh, overreach their departments. That's what we need to do. We need to take that back to Congress. 
So even though in the, exam, in the example of Medicaid, for example, which is primarily funded by the federal government, and that is administered at the state level, you just get rid of any federal apparatus, even though the federal government sends about $500 billion to the states. I don't know. No, I'm not saying Medicaid. I'm just saying that uh, we need to revamp every department. I mean, oh, we need to okay. go rethink it. Okay. Okay. I'm not talking about we get rid of all the departments. I'm oh. saying some like Department of Education, EPA. Okay. I'm just reading from your website. Maybe I misunderstood it. Uh, but yeah, we, no. we appreciate you coming on, and good luck uh, in the campaign. Carl Boynton, candidate for Mississippi's 4th Congressional District. Coming right back. Thanks, Carl. Thank you. Coming right back. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's do We are back in the Element Well studio. I will say this, uh, Rhino. I guess as a donor to various political campaigns, you know, they all share the mailing list. I'm on like a gazillion of them. Many of them do get trapped in my junk file, and that's that's fine. But don't feel bad. I don't give them a dime, and I still get emails. <laughs> It's probably a multiple applied on those who do, but I'm quite sure. I mean, if you're, you have a digital footprint whatsoever, you're in some mailing lists for politicians. You can subscribe to it, but you like need a, a full-time assistant to unsubscribe, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, all right, so not surprising, right after the verdict, I have just been bombarded with Donald Trump fundraising solicitations. Bombarded. Three this morning since we've been on the air. Unbelievable. But, I mean, that's the time to, to strike, I guess, when folks are upset, as I am. I'm, I'm upset about it for the country. I mean, sure, I, I have some concerns about the fact that they're requiring this private citizen to pay this money. I, I find that despicable. But, again, it's what does it point to in the future? Uh, because you know once something like this goes through, then everybody else starts piling on. And it won't just be, despite what Governor Kathy Hochul says, I don't think it stops at Donald Trump. And that's what concerns me. Ted Cruz is actually experiencing a, uh, a difficult race in Texas. I think he'll end, ultimately end up prevailing. But the Democrats are investing mightily in that race. They think he's vulnerable, and they can take him down. The demographics haven't changed, having changed a bit. The one that in Texas, the one that bothers me a little bit is Montana. That goofy John Tester, he's been there since dirt. Democrat in a state that honestly is Republican. I don't get it. They keep sending him back, Senator. He's got what appears to me a formidable competitor, but I saw a poll over the weekend. Tester's up 20 points, and it could just be name ID. Of course, how many people are there in Montana? 500,000? It's not many. 
It's a big state. And so I guess is it's hard to generate name ID in a small population that's highly dispersed. But I really had that one in the flip column, and I'm I'm uh, kind of wilting on that prospect at this point. Medicaid expansion. You know, we've also had a couple of folks that have reported. Do we have a site maybe that's experiencing some technical issues? Yeah, the Oxford station is uh, struggling, but they're working on it right now. Okay, and you got the app if you're able to tune in to that, and or somebody could pass on that. Of course, the app is fantastic, or the full size browser site as well. Um, also broadcast the shows, uh, both uh, the audio and video feed. Um. So yeah, right, let me get to this, Robert and Brandon. How much? Is the bond going to cost Trump that he has to put up in order to appeal the decision? That's right. You have to usually have an appeal bond. It's a good question, Robert. I I had a conversation with a couple of my lawyer friends that I played golf with yesterday. We were together four hours walking, and they explained this whole appeal bond process to me. They said normally it's 20%. So you got to come up with 20% cash to purchase an appeal bond. And the reason you have to do that is the courts that would hear the appeal require an appeal bond, generally speaking, in, in order to contest the verdict to the next level at an appeal court. That's really something. Uh, on the day he was fined $350 million, the FCC approved a merger that could net him $4 billion, says Mose. I hadn't looked at that. You may be right. Interesting tidbit of information. Um, so, the deal with Medicaid expansion. So, there's a couple of things. First, I want to call you, your attention to a, a great piece written by J.T. Mitchell, our news director. He was on with Lucian Smith filling in for Mr. Gallo uh, this morning. And uh, this happened over the weekend. You should check it out. It is uh, Hoseman Confident. I'm reading the the title of the article, Hoseman Confident Medicaid Expansion Plan with Work Requirements Will Pass the Legislature. Now, he just published that on Saturday, and, and um, I was aware he was going to be conducting this interview. So you'll know that Lieutenant Governor been a little under the weather, and it affected his voice. I don't think I'm talking out of school here because he did a, an interview with our, our news department, and it was detectable. Um, and, and so as an alternative to coming on the air, he agreed to this uh, to talk about this issue. Now, today's deadline day, and so he did indicate it is expected that a bill will be filed today, and then we're expecting one in the House. That, according to Speaker of the House Jason White, also on uh, with Mr. Gallo this morning. So uh, I will tell you guys that I, I read the article uh, as soon as uh, JT sent it to me over the weekend, as soon as it was up. I, I also provided some input to JT Friday afternoon before – uh, I got out of here of uh, some possible questions to ask uh, about this that um, uh, just just based on some uh, pre-existing knowledge of uh, the, the issue and having studied it con- uh, comprehensively through the years. And I read it. So go out and check it out. Um, it does have a work requirement. Now, what does that mean? This would be Medicaid expansion with a work requirement. So first thing to, to understand, I think, is exactly what Medicaid expansion is. It simply means that Medicaid benefits are extended to uh, a, a class, if you will, 
that currently are not eligible for Medicaid, and and that would be able-bodied adults. In other words, these are people who are not blind, they're not disabled, they're not the current coverage groups, they're not um, indigent elderly, they're not pregnant women, they're not children. In households with uh, below, I think it's 250% of the federal poverty level in Mississippi, these would be able-bodied adults whose income is below 138% of the federal poverty level. For an individual, that's about 20000 bucks a year. That is based on the expansion provision which passed in the Affordable Care Act 2010. It was implemented, the Medicaid expansion program, in 2014. It's been in place for 10 years. Forty states have expanded, 10 if not. Mississippi is one of them. That also includes Tennessee, Alabama, just recalling from memory here, Rhino, Georgia, Florida, I think it's Wisconsin, and there's somewhere else out there in the Midwest, Kansas or Oklahoma, one of those. So, um, Kansas. Kansas, okay. So um, pretty much the southeast in a row there, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia going east, Florida, Tennessee, and then um, South Carolina, I believe, and then Kansas, right, and Michigan. Yeah, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Kansas, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, Wisconsin, Wyoming, Texas. Mississippi. My, my apologies. Texas, the big one. That's the big prize that Medicaid, of course, proponents, Texas and Florida, where most who would be covered if they expanded Medicaid. All right, so Mississippi's one of those that has not. Neighboring Alabama, uh, pardon me, neighboring Louisiana to our east and Arkansas have to the north tennessee has not being debated this year again expecting a couple of bills work requirements back to that so during the trump so there's this provision in the medicaid program called section 1115 waivers essentially understand that medicaid is administered at the state level but it is jointly funded by the federal government and the state governments the, the federal government's uh, portion of the fund funding that it's called the federal match FMAP is the acronym for short, and uh, that stands for Federal Medical Assistance Percentage. Minimum is 50%. It's based on the per capita income of the state. Mississippi has the lowest per capita income of the state. Thus, our FMAP percentage is the highest in the country. In other words, we get more federal assistance for our Medicaid program as a percentage uh, than any other state. Sits at about 76 77%. It's it varies a little bit from year to year whenever they do that testing. The state's responsible for the remaining. It's the second most expensive program in our general fund budget at the state level, just under a billion dollars a year, second to education, which is about $2.3 billion a year of general fund uh, spending. So uh, expansion, if the state agreed to expand, originally it was uh, – required in the Affordable Care Act, but the Supreme Court decision to uphold the individual mandate included this rather obscure ruling as well that said, hey, federal government, you can't require states to expand a new into a new coverage group in Medicaid to retain existing standard Medicaid. Uh, that was part of that very pivotal Supreme Court ruling that kept the entire law from being uh, repealed, honestly, and struck down. And that's why all states haven't expanded. Mississippi's one of those. When we come back, we'll talk about what is being proposed. Just a little background there. In Mississippi, at least what we've been informed of by the speaker and by the uh, lieutenant governor and see where that goes. Coming right back in the Element Well studio. 
Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. in the Element Well studio. So just a little bit more about this Medicaid expansion. This is going to be, a, I think, a high-profile issue. It has been, but I think this year in particular, there seems to be, I think, a, a, a more favorable attitude towards it. That doesn't mean that I think it's going to pass. I really don't know at this point. I, I haven't really conducted any, any polling, little private polling of the members in the House and the Senate. Clearly, the lieutenant governor supports it because uh, in his interview with uh, our J.T. Mitchell from the News Department, again, that article at supertalk.fm, it's a great piece that outlines the lieutenant governor's thoughts. So a couple of things, just reading through it, and it which I did as soon as it was sent, is that he, uh, he seeks, so does the lieutenant governor, uh, what's called a waiver. We talked about that, a Section 1115 waiver. And that's just a request to the federal government, to the to CMS, the group that um, manages the Medicaid program at the federal level, to say, look, we, we want to operate ours here in, in our state. Since it is, it is a jointly funded program, and the, and the program does provide some latitude to the states and how they, they operate it, that, hey, look, we want this waiver here to require that uh, folks meet some certain defined work requirements those who have an income that makes them eligible for, for Medicaid under expansion, which would be less than $20,000 a year for an individual. We want them to work some, to qualify. Here's the concern I have with that. The waivers that uh, were sent to the federal government by states with work requirements, stipulating work requirements, there were 13 only one survived. They all got struck down. And the one that survived was also granted, by the way, under the Trump administration. The Biden administration, no no longer than the ink drying <laughs> over there in the White House after Inauguration Day on executive orders there, 32 of them issued. I remember Ryan, Noah, and I going through them in detail that day. Uh, not granting any waivers. So my view is that the Biden administration is not going to grant the state of Mississippi a work requirement waiver. If they did, it would open up the floodgates, I believe, for the other states who did request such waivers and in which later were struck down. I think they tried again. Hey, okay, if you did it for Mississippi, you got to do it for us. I don't see, I really don't see any any taste on the part of the Biden administration to grant these waivers. Second thing is, it's brutally difficult, brutally difficult to track it, to ensure. And by the way, it's an 80-hour a month, 80-hour a month requirement. 
And it's really, really difficult to ascertain whether or not someone enrolled in these federal assistance programs, such as TANF and SNAP and, and Medicaid, are actually meeting that requirement. They're actually working. It's hard. Many of them don't file tax returns. It's difficult enough, right out to determine if their income makes them eligible. It's hard to determine their income. Many of them don't have bank accounts. In fact, the state of Mississippi, we're the least banked state in the country. So a lot of people that would show up and apply for Medicaid don't have bank accounts, don't file tax returns. You can't tell if they're eligible or not. There, there's really no no information, no data one could use. When it's ongoing to stay in the program, you got to prove your eligibility, work requirements, income, etc., Hard. I mean, it's really, you'd have to have an army of people and very sophisticated automated systems to do it. So I don't see that going anywhere, honestly. I don't see the Biden administration approving Mississippi's work requirement waiver. I don't see that. Um, it's just my view. Now, the lieutenant governor also pointed to what Georgia did, kind of a Medicaid expansion light under this Section 1115 waiver. But here's the difference. Stay with me here, folks. Medicaid, as we said, covers able-bodied adult Medicaid expansion, able-bodied adults. That just means they can work. They're not blind. They're not disabled, which are currently covered by Medicaid. They're not um, indigent or low-income elderly. They're not children. They're not pregnant women. All of those are currently eligible based on their income. This would be a whole new coverage group. You're able-bodied. You can work. You just don't make enough money to afford insurance as deemed by the program, by the federal government. So what Georgia did was implement this kind of limited Medicaid expansion that only covers, stay with me here, people whose income is up to 100% of the federal poverty level. Not 138, 100. There's something called the coverage gap. And what that refers to is currently in the state of Mississippi and many other states, you can get Medicaid if you're an able-bodied adult. If you are a caretaker, for example, or a parent, that would be a caretaker as well, and your income is below 45% of the federal poverty level. That's about 6000 bucks a year. Now, between that and 100 is considered the coverage gap, 100% of the federal poverty level, because the federal government, in its wisdom in 2010, when they passed the Affordable Care Act, said, well, if you got... A federal an income above 100 percent of the federal poverty level, you're eligible for subsidized coverage in the ACA Obamacare exchanges. By the way, Thomas, I saw your comment the other day. Said we don't want Obamacare here in Mississippi. We already have Obamacare, and it's in the form of the ACA exchanges. 183,000 Mississippians currently subscribe to coverage in the ACA exchanges. That's really what is referred to when you talk about Obamacare. That was what was created. Um, with the Affordable Care Act, is these marketplaces, if you will, where those in the individual market can go buy coverage and receive tax credit subsidies to help defray the cost, based on their income on a sliding scale. Limits it to a percentage of their income. Well, what Georgia did was so limited, it is estimated there are 450,000 Georgians who, with full expansion, would be eligible for Medicaid. You know how many signed up? 2,300. That, according to information I gleaned from Georgia, it's published, widely published. So it's, for the most part, a failure. And, uh, and by the same token, 
It is also being challenged. There are lots of consumer groups that challenge these work requirements. And that's why the, virtually all of them got struck down. And, that, and why there's only one state remains, and it's just hanging on by a thread, and that's Georgia. So I don't know that I would look to that as a model. And by the way, it's totally different in that they only expanded and made it eligible to people whose income is below 100% of the federal poverty level, not up to 138 so you're not, I don't think in the state of Mississippi you'd move the needle under that program. And then you add the work requirements to it. Heck, if you're working, you're really part-time if you're making less than $14,000 a year. You're probably not. I'm just, I'm just guessing here. Now, don't hold me to it. I just don't know that there are too many adult workers in the state of Mississippi that make that i mean that's about what the minimum wage is the federal minimum wage which we still adhere to what's it seven and a quarter an hour works out to roughly fourteen thousand dollars a year I, I don't know here's what i think i think we need lots more information lots more i've actually scheduled out this weekend a list of questions and that's not questions data I think we need. The other concern, of course, and and the speaker talked about this morning, is that people who are enrolled in their group coverage with their employer that may pay some of that cost. Um, By the way, the average in the country is that for the individual, the employer pays 83% of the premiums, 83%. The employee is responsible for 17%. Average premium in the United States right now is about eighty five hundred bucks for an individual, twenty four thousand for a family. Twenty four thousand. That's the average in the state of Mississippi. Average employer coverage will uh, absorb seventy three percent, seventy three percent of family coverage, eighty three percent of individual. So the concern, and I, I share folks' concern, is that those enrolled in their group plans with their employer that are paying something out of pocket would, upon seeing that Medicaid would be available to them through expansion, they make less than 138% of the federal poverty level, they would exit their employer coverage and they would go to Medicaid. And they would get free, totally free. Wouldn't have any out-of-pocket costs, no deductibles, no copays, maybe sometimes a little one, um, no coinsurance, and zero-cost premiums, that they would do that. Well, we need data. How many people fit that category? How many people are currently on their employer's coverage that make less than 138% of the federal poverty level? I'm going to guess here that most people whose income is less than 138% of the federal poverty level work for employers who have less than 50 employees that don't offer insurance. We need lots of data, and that's one of the data points. We're coming right back with a final segment on Middays. We've sent... Are we going to do this? Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk Mississippi. We're back in the Element Well studio. Final segment 
Yeah, I heard the speak. Mo says uh, that was covered on the Gallo Show. Right. I heard the speakers well talk about that, that they want to implement a 12-month waiting period. Now, I saw that if, if you decided, hey, look, I can go to Medicaid and get totally free. I don't have to pay anything, even though your employer... So I don't know what the data is in Mississippi. I know what it is nationwide. That's right. It's 83% of individual coverage and 73% of family coverage is absorbed by the employer. The employee is responsible for the remainder. Something else that happened, and I don't want to get into it today. It's complicated. It's called the family glitch. By the way, it's the family glitch, Rhino, that sparked my interest in politics. It's, it just got resolved last year. And I started asking this question in 2008. And, it's, it, and the IRS didn't know what to do. They wrote the law. It was a drafting error. And the IRS, and they dumped this on the IRS, who's then got to codify that. Because, look, the Affordable Care Act, it's a series of debits and credits. There's more of the law that's codified in IRS regs than any other agency. Think about it. It's subsidized coverage. It's the way they... they um, require you to have insurance, to pay penalties. It's employers that have to pay penalties if they don't provide minimum essential coverage and don't make it affordable. All that stuff's IRS junk. There's some insurance reforms, there's no doubt. And then the expansion of, of, of Medicaid, it was just a new coverage group. Honestly, that ain't that complicated relative to what was brand new. That's just adding a coverage group to Medicaid, if you will, layering that on. But in in the private sector, all oh, that turned it upside down. The medical loss ratio and the community rating. I know you know what I'm talking about, and I'll get into it tomorrow. All that changed in the Affordable Care Act. The pre-existing conditions, a lot of people. So every time you hear President Trump and any Republican say, I'm protecting pre-existing conditions. In other words, you're protecting a key provision of Obamacare. That's just the truth. You get mad at me all day long. I'm just telling you the truth. That, that didn't exist in the individual market. It had been around in the group market since 1996. That's a ruse to a great extent. Um, so I, don't, I just don't think that CMS is going to see think kindly to Mississippi's request. I could be totally wrong. They may have already had all these conversations with CMS. They say, yeah, if you put forth a waiver for a work requirement in this one-year delay in transferring from – private commercial group coverage to Medicaid, yeah, we're on board. The floodgates would over open. That's all I'm saying, that the 13 states that used to have that, that all got struck down, or they just said it's more of a hassle to us, honestly, costs more for us to administer that than it, that, and to monitor and managing it, manage it than it does just to cover them from a state's perspective. Federal government, honestly, ought to give money to the states to build more robust eligibility checking systems. That's what's needed across all those transfer programs. It's not just Medicaid. So like I said, it's TANF, it's SNAP, it's housing assistance, the myriad of other programs that are all based on income. And I know people think, oh, people are going to gain that. You don't think that folks in the private sector are managing their capital gains, for example, and their income so as to avoid creeping into a higher tax bracket. You don't think employers manage their staff so as not to get over the magic number of 50, which triggers all the Obamacare requirements and penalties? Of course they do, every day. That's been going on. It's just because everything's based on these numeric thresholds. So those are all valid concerns. I'm with them. And if we can get this thing through, it's better. However, it's my belief that a fraction 
of the people eligible for Medicaid. This is this is not a statement for it or against it. It's just my my perspective that a fraction of the people, just as we saw what happened in Georgia, that would be eligible for Medicaid under expansion without work requirements. I just think a lot of them don't want to work. And you've pointed this out many times. Why in the world would they sign up? They're getting free health care now. They're not paying for it now. It's, and this thing that's different about Medicaid as a transfer program, you're not transferring money to the patient. You're transferring it to the hospital, to the provider who's caring for the patient. Because right now they're getting zero. That's what's got to be addressed. That ought to be the problem we're trying to solve. Not just say, well, Medicaid expansion is the route to fixing that problem. Well, it may be to some extent, but the bigger, larger problem is people in Mississippi, unfortunately, are sick. We have an unhealthy population. Our lifestyles are, are bad for our health. They're not the best. And then we end up, much of our population, in the hospital. You know this right on the show in the hospital, never having gotten a wellness exam. And they're all of a sudden, they're, they're becoming symptomatic. And they got a blood sugar of 500. Next thing you know, you're amputating a leg. I'm not exaggerating, Emma. No. That happens. And then it's life care because it's irreversible at that point. That's what we got to focus on and address. We're too hyper-focused on to expand Medicaid or not. That, that is maybe part of the discussion, but the larger discussion is how do we improve. And I know if, if he's listening out there, um, Dr. Dan Edney, who runs the Department of Health, he, uh, he's a big proponent and a champion for improving the quality of our health. Not just health care, our state's health. And I'm with him, and he's right. That's what we need to be working on. I don't see any public policy to address that, honestly, with any vigor. We're out of here today. It is Ricky Matthews, Super Talk Outdoors, next. Thanks for joining. Back with you tomorrow. Stay safe, and God bless everyone. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.